Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. Later this year, you'll be able to go to a high street pharmacy and buy an injection that kills your appetite. Even the thought of eating a burger or a slice of cake becomes repellent to people on semaglutide. It's a drastic solution to a problem that keeps getting worse, our inability to resist the cheap, unhealthy food that you can buy everywhere in Britain. Appropriately, Henry Dimbleby's new book, written with Jemima Lewis, is called Ravenous. He co-founded the Leon restaurant chain and he wrote the government's national food strategy. Last week, though, he quit that job, I think it's fair to say, in disgust. Welcome to the bunker, Henry. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So why did you quit? Well, so it was actually, as with all of these things... It was, you know, it's never a conspiracy. It was a fuck up. Um, almost immediately having done this national food strategy work for government, I realized that, you know, you change a system by changing the way people think it works as much as by policy and that no one was ever going to go onto a, a website and download a government report. So I realized that I needed to turn it into a book. I mentioned this to the senior civil servants in DEFRA and said I was going to publish a book and one of them, who I absolutely love, kind of leant over and touched me on the arm and said, um, don't you think it would be easier to talk openly if you weren't working in DEFRA? <laughs> and um, I realised immediately that was true. It would be incredibly unfair on them if I did that. I then resigned, but it turned out I had a notice period and I had to let the Secretary of State had to agree on the notice period. And that only came through that agreement about a week before the book was published. So they, it looked like a storming out in disgust, whereas actually it was wanting to speak openly and without having to censor myself for fear of causing trouble for anyone else. Well, now you can, and we're very pleased to have you do that. You're not the only person to have tried and failed to convince the government to take more action on food. I mean, Jamie Oliver has long campaigned, for example, for universal free school meals the London mayor has agreed to bring them in, but the government just won't do it. And that's just one aspect of food policy. Is it that they don't know where to begin? Or is it a reluctance to interfere in the market? What's the fundamental thing stopping them acting? As I said, you have to do two things. One is change the way people think about things. And then the other is get policy in. Policy tends to be quite tactical. So for example, universal free school meals that actually does exist at, at infant level. And I recommended it in a previous government report, the school food plan back in 2013. And that happened because Michael Gove, who was in education at the time, 
wrote to Danny Alexander and said, should we both put this in our manifestos? And then Clegg, who was you know in the coalition government at the time, and David Laws, who was in education, seized on it and they made it happen. You know, some of my recommendations have happened. Marcus Rashford, for example, campaigned for a bunch of the recommendations from the food strategy back in October 2021, because I happened to have sent a, a copy to the CEO of Manchester United, asking him to give Marcus a copy. And as a result of that, we got another bunch of stuff across the line. But fundamentally, government is both ideologically often riven. So there will be ideological views that aren't based on reality that prevent things happening. But then secondly, for kind of deep systemic things like this, where there are people across all the government departments who have an interest and who are lobbied by industry, you need a very strong number 10 to deal with it, with a strategy and a plan. And, you know, I had five secretaries of state during my five years at the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, and four prime ministers. And I think fundamentally, this we, we didn't have a stability in politics to be able to look at the long-term systemic issues. And so we were more... And also, to be fair, you know, we had four, four potential no-deal Brexits, uh, a pandemic and a war. So some of the harder, longer-term decision-making goes by the by in those situations, those, those kind of environments. Because sometimes it feels like only celebrity intervention gets anywhere in this country when it comes to food. Well, it's not that bad, actually, to be honest. So, you know, Jamie Oliver, obviously, was was successful in school food. But another recommendation from the from that school food strategy, which was putting cooking on the curriculum for everyone up to the age of 14, didn't require celebrity intervention. And we have some very fundamental, some of the stuff that I wrote on the environment is happening and it's quite wonky it's things like you know land use framework what do we want to do with our land how do we incent people to restore nature as well as produce food that is happening uh but sort of slightly under the radar but i think for the things that are on the edge of the overton window for things that are particularly ideologically charged and i would include food poverty in that and i would definitely include health and you know the whole problem we have with the nanny state in that it often does require an external campaign to push things over the line so what form does that nanny state those worries about the nanny state take did you find when you were working with government that this was something that was slowing things down people worried that there would be overreach that there would be maybe a campaign in the daily mail saying hands off that kind of thing Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. The nanny state, the phrase was coined in this country, I think, in the in the 60s, you know, in a country that was mostly run by politicians who had been brought up with nannies and were very ambivalent about their relationship with nannies. On the health space, what is really interesting is that the politicians are actually out of step with the citizens. So whereas on meat. Uh, we did a lot of focus groups and, and quantitative research, and people don't want the government getting involved in whether they eat meat or not or doing anything about it. It's a very, very fractious area. On health, people are actually fed up with the extent to which their children are bombarded with unhealthy food. They want restrictions on advertising. So it is, it's an area where ideology currently is actually misaligned with electoral politics. How do they feel about supermarkets? People? Yeah. Well, interestingly, you know, they live in a food system 
And the things they see are they're being bombarded by unhealthy stuff. But also, I think people like the fact they keep prices down and they have a big variety uh, of food. And actually, the supermarkets are a better place to get us out of this mess than some of the you know fast-moving consumer goods companies. So in the book, we kind of argue that if you look at the fast-moving consumer goods companies, 85% of the items in their portfolios uh, or their food portfolios are deemed by the WHO to be too unhealthy to market to children. And they have huge factories that are making this stuff. And trying to create a healthier nation for them is very difficult, whereas the supermarkets are going to make money whatever they, they sell us. So I think, you know, citizens don't really think about companies in that way, most of us. But I think the supermarkets personally are going to be the ones who are going to help lead us out of the mess. So what are they going to do? What would you like them to do? I think the first thing, as we say in the book, you need some government intervention because it is just more profitable to sell unhealthy food than healthy food. We like it. There's a bigger market. Um, And so if any individual company moves away from from that, someone else will just come in and do it instead. So you need some government intervention. And we talk about restricting advertising, salt and sugary formulation tax. The one thing I think food companies can do is uh, privately, they will, will all say to me, we are stuck in this, we call it the junk food cycle, we're stuck in it, we can't help it, we need government intervention. They need to stop lobbying government telling them it'll be an absolute disaster if these measures are brought in. But the second thing I think supermarkets can do, one of the supermarkets did a trial about how it positioned and placed its products. And they managed to get the people in their supermarket to purchase significantly healthier baskets of food by the way they promoted things in their supermarkets. They made less money, a bit less money from those supermarkets. But I think that's what I would like the supermarkets to be doing, which is how can they nudge us to all to eat slightly better? Um, They should be running trials on that all the time in, in their stores and working out how they can do that and still make money. Part of the problem is that a lot of us don't know how to cook anymore. And when you don't have that skill, the layer of a ready meal or a McDonald's or a pizza from Deliveroo, whatever, is just the obvious choice. Is there anything that we can do about that? You mentioned um, cooking classes for under 14s. I have to say, you know, my, my daughter has been in secondary school for nearly three years and she hasn't had a single cookery class since beginning. So I'm not convinced that that's actually happening in real life. What else could we do? No, it's not. I think that's a fascinating example of the fact that the state is limited in its ability to affect things. So you can't pass a law and make things happen. And there are a lot of schools who aren't, who currently aren't doing what is in the curriculum and, and providing cookery lessons, not just of muffins, but you know, it talked about a, you know, an array of savoury foods that could help feed their family now and in, and in the future, and learning the love of of cooking. So I think there are a couple of things that we can do. Government intervention is necessary, but not sufficient. And it needs people from the bottom up to make a difference. I I work with, I've founded a charity called Chefs and Schools. We go in school by school. We've been to over 100 now to help them with the skills to teach people to cook and to cook proper food from scratch. I think each of us in our own community can think about how to do that. So, for example, you might want to 
asked to go into the school and have lunch with the child and talk about it with the head teacher. That single intervention can be hugely powerful. You know, try and cook with children you know, with your children. Um, I also think, actually, having thought they were a bit of a disaster, I tried one of those delivery cookery boxes the other day. I mean, I was a chef, so I didn't really need it. But I think they are a fantastic way of learning to cook again. My 11-year-old daughter cooked us all six of us dinner for three quid a head, um, which is not cheap, but it's a lot more, a lot cheaper than Deliveroo. And uh, there was less waste and it was better for you. So I think that a, a lot of the kind of culture change needs to happen from the bottom up. And speaking of culture change, I was thinking about Bake Off and the enormous success that has been Bake Off in all its various forms. And it's all about cooking mostly very unhealthy food. Is there any way to turn that around? You're, you know, you're getting an opportunity for people to watch people cooking for a an hour each week and they're only cooking unhealthy stuff. Do you sometimes feel frustrated that we couldn't have done it a bit differently? That's an interesting question. You know, I'm, I'm not anti-cake. And I, my children, we, we describe in the book my children going to a birthday party where it was all that was on offer was calorie, um, carrots and celery sticks. And the kind of look of disappointment in the face of the children was a bit depressing. But <laughs> you know, it would be great to have a sister show alongside that, which did healthier, better food. But, you know, you look at a cake and it's like a picture, isn't it? It's, it's not so much the cake. It's kind of everything that that represents. We are all by attitude. We love that kind of celebration junk food. So you can see, again, the, the TV producers in the same way that the food industry, that's what they will it, it go towards because that's, that's where the eyeballs are. Let's talk about veg, because we're seeing shortages of salad veg in the UK, and the government's answer seemed to be to eat more root veg instead. Specifically, I think turnips were mentioned. Looking beyond the way that we seem to be turning this into comedy rather than a serious issue about food shortages, do we grow enough of the right things in Britain? God, this story drove me absolutely nuts. So we have... Uh, that problem was fundamentally caused by climate change. So there were a whole bunch of irrigation projects in Morocco that the government had done. We had moved a lot of production to Morocco. Morocco had had this completely crazy spell of very warm weather followed by a cold snap, which caused a shortage. And then there were various reasons why that affected us in different ways here than in Europe. But the fundamental problem was climate change. And the second biggest driver of climate change is the food system. So rather than talking about whether it's acceptable to tell people to eat turnips uh, in in winter, we know, which is funny, and it goes back to Blackadder, and it's kind of, you know, a line of uh, British humour, it's actually not particularly helpful. And in terms of whether specifically with climate change, we want to grow more of that stuff in Britain, uh, we're currently 60% self-sufficient. In horticulture, we are lower than, than that, and we should be. Although, you know, whenever we're producing our own tomatoes in, in January, uh, environmentally efficiently, we should definitely be. There are various reasons why we can and why we should be producing more, uh, more vegetables in this country. I mean, for a lot of people, the answer is to go vegan. You're not vegan, are you? No, I'm not. There, there are two big issues with the rearing of animals, in my view. One is animal welfare concerns. And 
I do think, and having looked deep into that, and there's a, we have a chapter in the book called Sentient Food, where we describe some of the horrors of industrial animal rearing. We compare it to William Wilberforce, who founded the RSPCA, as well as being a slave campaigner. One of the things that he, the first things they campaigned against was bull baiting, where bulldogs would bite, you know, fight with bulls and bite, rip their skin on their faces off. And people at the time said, oh, you know, this is just the lusty pleasures of working people. Don't be a killjoy. And I do think, even though I'm a meat eater myself, that in another 150 years' time, some of the things we do now will be seen as completely abhorrent. And we will think, what were we thinking in the same way that we did about bull baiting back then? But secondly, in the short term, meat just takes up too much resource. 85% of the land that is used to feed people in the UK is used either to graze meat or to grow crops to feed to meat. And it's very it's a very inefficient way of farming. So we target a 30% reduction by 2030 in meat eating, probably a bit more since then, because you need some of that land back. You need some of that land back to restore biodiversity and to sequester carbon. So in the book, we say in the future, morally, we may find this much more difficult than we do now. But in the present, we immediately don't all need to go vegan, but we need to eat a lot less meat. So, well, 30% less meat to, to take pressure off the land. And is lab-grown meat, fake meat, going to be the solution, do you think? I think it'll be one of the solutions. I think that, you know, that you have to, that there are a number of different kinds of lab-grown protein. There's the most prominent sort now is just vegetable proteins that are made to taste like meat. You know, when 50% of the meat we eat is in a kind of minced, processed form, why not replace that with a bit more vegetables? Um, I think that the the real lab-grown, the cell-grown meat, I... I I can't see it ever becoming cheap enough. So this is literally when you get stem cells and you grow them in a solution and then you turn them into meat. I can't see that becoming cheap enough and tasty enough to replace either the vegetable version or the real version. But then there are people who are much richer than me putting a lot of money into it, so I may be wrong. But I think that generically the whole alternative protein will definitely be part of the solution. And we talk in the in the book about being sent some chicken nuggets, and I've got a vegetarian daughter and a, a, a meat eating son and a, and a son who eats everything, and they just devoured these fake chicken nuggets. They were a plant protein, and they were pretty processed and they were pretty salty and pretty fatty, but they didn't have meat eat in them, and that will be part of the environmental solution, even if it's not doing anything for my children's health. So you're not working with government anymore. You're free to speak out, as you said. What's your priority now? So I'm going to try and do things. I'm, I'm trying to spread the word on how the system works, but bottom up. And there are two things in particular that I'm working on. One is this charity, Chefs in Schools. We've done over 100 schools. Uh, I'd like to, over the next five years, do a, a few thousand schools and actually transform what children eat by retraining and bringing skills back into schools. And then the other thing is M&C Saatchi, the advertising agency, the CEO read the food strategy, which the book was based on. And we are trying to hatch a plan to, using their pro bono work, um, hatch a plan to create a positive campaign for eating less meat. One of the problems, I think, with the meat eating thing is that it can be seen as a bit worthy. And if I think about Elon Musk with electric cars. Electric cars could have been the kind of loser's version of a car that the petrol heads didn't like at all. And Elon Musk has managed to brand the 
environmentally friendly things still as being quite cool. And I think there's space to get even meat eaters to eat a bit less meat and not feel that they're in some way uh, invalidating their masculinity, femininity, whatever it is, make it not a culture war, just something that we need to do to, to protect the environment. Henry, thanks so much for talking to us. Just before you go, it's nearly lunchtime when I'm speaking to you. What are you going to have for lunch? Uh, fun, funnily enough, I am going to have the leftovers of a green papaya salad. We have a Vietnamese woman living in our house at the moment, a Swiss Vietnamese, and her mother and aunt came for dinner last night and cooked us this incredible Vietnamese spread. And uh, I'm going to be having the leftovers of the, uh, of the green papaya salad. Well, that sounds that sounds gorgeous. I'm going to be having some leftover dal. So there you go. We're both we're both on course. <laughs> dal is better the day after, anyway. <laughs> yes, that's true. Henry, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you. Ravenous is published by Profile Books. If you've enjoyed listening to the bunker, do consider backing us on Patreon. It's as little as three pounds a month. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker was presented by Roz Taylor. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, audio productions by me, Robin Lieber, and the theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>